You're listening to Slow Theology, Simple Faith for Chaotic Times, with A.J. Swoboda and E.J. Gupta. Well, it is an absolute joy to be back with my good friend E.J. Gupta, A.J. Swoboda here. Welcome back to Theol- Slow Theology, uh, and basic, basic explorations of the Christian life uh, in a thoughtful um a thoughtful and life-giving way. We're going to dig right in today to talk about a topic that I'm excited to have a conversation about, Nije. I've wanted to talk about this publicly for quite some time and actually haven't felt really comfortable talking about it because it's a kind of thorny topic. Um, I just recently published or recently submitted my my most recent book, which is going to be coming out this next year, uh, with Zondervan uh, on the topic of desire. Uh, the title of the book mm-hmm. is The Gift of Thorns, The Way of Jesus Through Our Wayward Desires. And at some point, we can unpack some of the ideas yeah. in that book, but the idea is you know, spiritual form and desire. How do we find God in our desires? But my next book, uh, which I'm going to begin working on uh, right now, I mean, the, the, the publisher is um, super jazzed about uh, this idea, is a book about uh, learning. And the, the title, the preliminary title that I've given to it, I don't know if the publisher will allow me to keep it, but the preliminary title of the book is Learn Like a Christian, A Syllabus for the Godward Life. And the basic premise of the book is this. That Christians should and can be known for being the best learners in the world. Hmm. And, and unfortunately, you in the circles that we can tend to be in, Nijay, that is not always, that is not always the reputation that a follower of Jesus in America has. That we, you know, in, for example, in the, po- in the COVID world, we learned that a lot of Christians are really closed to the idea of hearing from science, what our scientists are telling us about, um, the human body. We're, we're skeptical about news media, all this sort of thing. Right. And all this, all this raises a, a real big question for the Christian. Is a Christian a good learner? How does a Christian learn well and discern truth from falsehood? So in light of that, I want to talk about a very specific part of this book that I'm going to be writing about, and I'm super jazzed to write on. And this is, this is what I want to talk about today. Is it possible? And I would say not only possible, but important. Is it important that we can learn, learn to learn from our Mm -hmm. theological enemies? And what I mean by that are people that maybe are not in our particular tribe in the church, which I I use the term enemy kind of loosely. I don't mean enemy in the sense that somebody that loves Jesus is an enemy, but somebody that maybe isn't in our tribe that we can learn from. A great example of this would be, uh, I have, I come from the charismatic tradition and tend to be more on the Arminian side of the conversation. I'm not fully Arminian, but I'm kind of like a three point Arminian or something like that. (laughs) And um, I have over the years, just a crude, deep love of some of my reformed Calvinist brothers and sisters who's right. just who just they really have shaped me. I mean, I, I could think right now, for example, of people like Kevin Van Hooser and D.A. Carson and um, you know, individuals that kind of come from that world that are just not in my tribe. Right. And I love them. They've shaped me. And I just more and more and more increasingly believe that one of the gifts we should have is that we should be able to learn from theological traditions in the church that we just are not a part of. So on a gut level response, um, Nijay, is it possible, nay, important to learn from what I'm calling our theological enemies or our interlocker, the, the, the people that we 
think differently about the, the Christian faith? What's your initial gut level response to that? My initial gut level response is, um, you know, if you asked me 30 years ago <laughs> versus now, my initial response now is we must. And it's mm-hmm. actually a sign uh, of maturity and that you're on the right path based on who you're reading and who you're listening to. But let's go back 25 years ago to seminary when I was in seminary 20 years ago. And I probably was formed in some circles where you treated certain groups of people with fear, suspicion, and even malice. This idea that, and I, and with my students, I talk about this a lot. I talk about, uh, I call it the contamination theory. Mm. That if I go and listen to this heretic AJ Swoboda speak at a Pentecostal conference, um, some of his Pentecostal cooties mm. are going to float through the air and into. I've been watching Last of Us, which is about zombies, so I'm I'm really you know <laughs> I got <laughs> I got this infection yes, yes. mindset going. Yes. But you know, some of your cooties, you know, your theological cooties are going to stick to me, and they're going to sink in. They're going to get in my bloodstream, and I'm going to turn into a heretic. Um, let me give an example. So in seminary, I took a course on criticism of the Old Testament. And my professor, who's a wonderful guy, but maybe it was my my misunderstanding, but he was sending the message that theologians like Bultmann and Kaysemann, uh and Valhausen, that, that they were essentially evil. I mean, I don't think he came out and said that, but they're basically saying, don't read these works because they're going to, you know, they're going to poison your faith they're they're dirty they're impure yeah and so oh my gosh like i i wouldn't be caught dead reading boltman in the library <laughs> because like that's you know that's you know asking for trouble and i remember my doctoral program i took a course on the interpretation of paul throughout time and my professor john barclay had us read ernst Kaysemann, rudolph boltman and what i came to realize is I disagree with some of their views. I agree with other ones. I've learned from them. But most importantly, they're not evil people. <laughs> it took me a long time to really figure out, okay, Boltman actually had great intentions for demythologizing. He wanted to protect the gospel from historical criticism. Um, I disagree with the, his tactics, but his intentions seem pretty good. Um, same thing with Urs Kainstamon in many ways with some of his historical critical viewpoints. All that to say, there's a way we can teach our students or people in church to make them fear the boogeyman mm. of another viewpoint. And that's going to lead to that chasm between to get bigger and bigger. And what's up happening is you end up having a very one dimensional faith and theology because you're only learning from one strand of thought. Mm. Mm. What was your what was your kind of formative theological experiences like along these lines? Well, I I have very similar experiences, Nijay, of um of having this almost um I remember years ago reading a book by Richard Beck on Richard Beck teaches at uh, Abilene Christian University. He writes about exactly what you're talking about. He's talking about 
pollution, purity, impurity, the psychology of um, disgust is actually the kind of area that he writes about. And then he talks about how, you know, in the Western world, we have a very unique way of thinking about something that's disgusting. So, for example, if I was to take an apple and yeah. dunk an apple into a toilet, you, you have a clean thing and a dirty thing. In the Western yeah. world, when you take a clean thing and you put it into a dirty thing, the the, the clean thing is always made dirty. Right. So we have a, a one-way view of disgust and purity that we are always made dirty b- by the dirty thing. Right. Now, there's – and actually Beck and a number of other people have written about how in the Gospels the opposite is going on with Jesus. When Jesus touches the impure, his holiness is imparted to them and his purity right. is imparted to them. So the Eastern understanding of impurity is a little bit different because holiness makes unholy holy, whereas in the Western world, the holy thing is made unholy by the unholy thing. There, In, in theology circles, there is a kind of guilt by association or right. disgust by association um, to quote – or to, um, to to quote a particular source, whatnot. And actually, of all people that really, I actually find really struggle with this, Nije, are people in our tribe around, for example, women in ministry. Yeah. Um, uh, you and I are both um, full affirming uh, of women in the church, in all levels of leadership in the church, mm-hmm. we're what, we, what one would call an egalitarian perspective. Sure. And those in our tribe can often be very close-minded to hear from their complementarian brothers and sisters. We often talk about how complementarians won't listen to egalitarians, um, but I, I think I think we are equally as guilty to be unwilling to listen to our brothers and sisters uh, who disagree greatly with us on this very, very topic. And I think that creates a great discomfort because if I'm going to ask others to be willing to hear my theological perspective, I must – I must. It, it's almost an act of – virtue, I must be willing to do the same for them. Um, and that, you know, in the egalitarian, you know, charismatic world, to stand up and quote complementarians puts you in a your guilt by association. But I got to be honest, some, there have been complementarians who have deeply formed my faith uh, and love of Jesus. Uh, you know, the, you know, the academy has a lot of problems, but one of the things I really love about the academy is that desire to bring people of different minds and persuasions together. One of the reasons I go to an, an annual conference that we sometimes go to called the AARSBL, American <laughs> Academy of Religion, Society of Biblical Literature. It can be kooky and weird. It's a big tent. But in its best moments, it's trying to encourage scholars to learn from people that are very different than them. Yeah. Um, one thing I use with my students, so I teach a hermeneutics course, which is a fancy word for philosophy of interpretation, right? I teach a hermeneutics course, and we talk a lot of, about a lot of controversial subjects like sexuality and women in the Bible, and uh, we might talk about different forms of church governance and, you know, all those kind of controversial topics. And, and immediately day one, I can feel the tension in the room of students because for so many of these topics, AJ, people have very strong feelings. And when you have strong feelings, your threat level is high, right? You're, you're on your guard because you've spent a lot of time thinking about this. You have a vested interest in it. 
you know, you have a denominational association. I mean, there's all kinds of stuff wrapped into that. So I give a little statement at the beginning that I hope diffuses some of that tension. And it's this. Uh, on these controversial issues, as a Christian in dialogue, your job is not to be to adopt the opinions of the other people, mm. but to be shaped or impacted by their values. Mm. So they're coming. So, so someone on the opposite of an issue, they're, they're coming not only with an opinion, but with a value behind that opinion. And even if you don't take their opinion, uh, it's worth hearing out what value they're broadcasting. You know, care for black people, care for women, right? What about my rights? You know, all of these things are policies, their opinions, but they also behind it is a value. So if, if we say, AJ, you're going to go to a conference or you're going to read a book and all that's being asked of you is that you can feel an identification with a value. Mm. To me, that would you agree that lowers the threat level that, oh my gosh, I'm going to read this book by Bart Ehrman or by Peter Enns, and, and, or I'm going to watch this YouTube video, and all of a sudden I'm going to lose my faith. Like There's this idea of mm. like this kind of mm. toppling tower. Yes. But if all you're doing is saying, what's the value in here, and is there some way I can, I can be responsive and care about this? The value, even if it's expressed in a different way. Yeah, my, my wife, Quinn, is going to be listening to this and uh, somewhere down the road, and she's going to hear what I'm going to say, and she's going to be really proud that I incorporated this oh, into our good. conversation. Because as parenting, right, as parenting, y you want your kids um, to have a good palate for a lot of different flavors. And sometimes kids have to try things that they don't like for the sake of at least saying that they did it. And, of course, what do you call it? A no thank you bite. You just take a bite and then say <laughs> no thank you. Just a no thank you bite. I and, love that. Because as we all know, right, you got to try new foods because it might taste good. If any of you are Daniel Tiger neighborhood friends, uh, which which I clearly am, then you know, right? <laughs> a no thank you bite is your way of saying like, okay, I'm willing to hear. I don't agree. And I'm yeah. not going to eat it. Yeah, but I'm willing yeah. to hear. That is a critical skill for a Christian because we assume to listen and hear means agreement. Yeah. And those in the in the Christian tradition, to listen and agree are not the same. Right. Jesus is constantly listening to people he disagrees with, yeah, and giving them space to speak when uh, he, he he knows the truth. That's not an issue of his, but but he gives space uh, to. So okay, here's a here's a practice. So we we often think at the the ten thousand foot level. I actually want to get practical about this. I think it's important for a Christian. I think it's really important for every Christian to develop key relationships with people that they disagree with theologically for one, if, if for one reason whatsoever. And that is this. In a world <clears throat> forged by digital spaces where we are hearing stories about everybody digitally, it is easy to take those stories and disconnect those stories from real life. If I was to have some story come across my newsfeed about a Calvinist pastor who allowed abuse in the church, it would be easy for me to assume all Calvinists are that way. Hmm. And that's just not, that's garbage. That's not true. And so if I have a reformed friend in my life, a Calvinist friend in my life, I, I want to go to that person and say, can you walk me through like what you see going on in your world? And I think what that does 
have a if you're an evangelical, have a Catholic friend. Uh, if you are, um, you know, on the sexuality conversation, if you're, um, you know, on the more conservative side, as I am, having a friend on the other side that at least makes it a human dialogue rather than we're writing everything off because we heard something on a digital space. It, I think, if all of us had five or six, maybe even three or four intentional relationships with Christians that think differently than we do. It is just going to make us deeper, deeper people. When we swim in our own stream, we tend to just fill up our stream with all the same stuff and we are immune to being corrected. I love, by the way, my my mom would say this, you know, 30 years ago, if you were an evangelical, you would not listen to Catholics. You would not listen to Catholic right. thinkers. I love that that there's a young generation of Christians who love Jesus with all their heart and are willing to listen to Ronald Rollheiser and listen to Thomas Merton and listen to to, to people uh, who have you know on the other side of the type or on the uh, that are that are Catholics. And I think that's a sign of tremendous health. It doesn't mean they're all right. It just means that that we're in dialogue with them. I don't know. What do you think? Yeah, I've been using a term you know the last couple of years. You know. Um, that has been really shaping for how I think about this subject. And it's called intellectual hospitality. Mm. And I get this uh, from another scholar and I'll try to post it when we post this uh, episode. But, um, and the whole idea behind intellectual hospitality is the goal of uh, intellectual engagement, which happens on social media, happens in the classroom, happens in the church sometimes. What's the goal and and if the goal is to just be right and to overpower the other person, prove yourself right, that gets old really fast. And mm. I've noticed in myself, I've been experiencing kind of social media fatigue. So I'm really not on social media much anymore because I'm just tired of people just bickering and arguing and just dunking on each other left and right. Yes. And so when I read about this concept of intellectual hospitality, I really perked up because it's really about setting the table for an interesting and generous conversation amongst people that think differently. And when you think about it, when you think about engagement from that perspective, that I'm at this table to learn and to grow and I'll offer mm -hmm. feedback and I'll challenge, but I'm really at this table as a learner. I'm really at this table to become a better thinker. That's going to change your posture mm -hmm. in how you engage and what you think the goal of the conversation is, hmm. right? I'll give an example for book reviews. You know, I, I started writing book reviews back in like 2006, 2007. And I just thought the goal of a book review was to tell people if the book is good or bad. <laughs> that seems right. That seems like you should do. And so I just say, this book is good for these reasons, has these mistakes. And then I started writing for magazines like Christian Today, and, and they take a little bit of a different approach to book reviews it's kind of a combination of a book review, an essay, and open thought about why the subject matters. And the more I started writing those kind of reflective, open-ended book reviews, the more I leaned into that space of my goal really isn't to tell people if the book is good or bad, because who am I to say for everybody if that's the case? It's really to say, where does this book fit in a wider conversation what great questions is it asking? How can I bring my expertise to bear on that? Uh, where has this author opened up space to think in new ways? 
Um, so I've actually moved away in book reviews away from binary judgments mm. uh, to more of a posture of how can I set the table for an interesting open-ended conversation? And what that, I, I hope what that is signaling AJ is we will, we will start to appreciate and, and be invested in these conversations with quote unquote enemies. The more we realize that I'm always, I'm always in a posture of growing and learning. Yeah. Some of my fears, AJ, is these theological pundits <laughs> yeah. on social media. They think they're done. <laughs> mm. You know, maybe they were done like in their 20s or whatever, but they're done. And now their job is like just like shoot to kill <laughs> yes. Yes. in terms yes. of like protect truth. Like I've I've worked hard to get to a place where I have all truth. Now my job is to protect it. And so mm. you're just out there you know, loading your gun and shooting. Um, I've never been like that. Sometimes I felt like, you know, that's right. And now I realize to me, it either comes from a place of fear or hubris or some weird combination. Mm. Is that, am I saying too much there? No, I'm with you with, with the caveat that there are important moments for uh, people like yourself or myself or any of us to stand up for guarding the truth. You can't yeah. read Paul's writings around the resurrection and say he was just willing to, well, let's just get along and disagree, you know? <laughs> like, there are worthy issues yes. that are worthy of um, going going to the mat. But, but to the broader issue, you talked about this idea of dunking on people, right? Yeah. Theological dunking or, yeah. you know, own, own the libs, sort of yeah. te teach them. And, and then let's make YouTube videos shaming people in yeah, their yeah. moments of being wrong. I, uh, over the Christmas break, um, did a three day. This was life changing, by the way, light, utterly life changing. I have had some pretty intense family of origin things in my life that I just hadn't really dealt with. Um, and and the, the debris from those experiences just haven't, haven't been really looked at and they've been kept in a closet. And for three days over the Christmas break this year, 2022, I did a three-day therapy intensive with my therapist and spent three days unpacking um, some of the debris from my, my childhood. And one of the things that came out of that is that um, this tremendous fear that if I say the wrong thing, um, I will lose somebody really important to me. And it turns out there was a childhood experience in my, in my early formative years where I spoke truth and I lost a really important person in my life as a result of it. And that taught me then the way you compensate is you don't speak truthfully to keep people around. That's a really, yeah. that's not a good way to live. Um, because when, you know, when I speak, um, words have consequences and it's okay. And, it, and it's okay to speak truthfully. Anyways, one of the things that came out of that three days is my counselor used a phrase that just has haunted me. This was back in December. And he, he, he made a comment. He said, there are Christians in, in the church that love to use theology, not to serve, but to punish. Mm. And, he, and he had a word for it. He used this phrase. He called it theological sadism, mm. using theology to just punish people. And we find pleasure in theological punishment. Yeah, That really stuck with me because that is we, – we, so we have a word for theological sadism. It's called Twitter. <laughs> and, it, and it has become this yeah. world where the goal is owning somebody, punishing somebody 
and making somebody sit uh, in, in their mistakes. You and I are not immune to making mistakes. And I have made glorious mistakes in my past, theological mistakes, as have you. But the church must be a place where if we are willing to forgive sin, then we are equally willing to, to forgive theological mistakes. And the irony, you know, in many of my circles, you can make mistakes with your, you can sin and there's forgiveness, but if you sin theologically, you're done. Yeah. And I, I think this idea of intellectual hospitality that you're bringing to the table and that we're trying to discuss here um, really can bear fruit in all of our lives on not just a global level and a social media level, but on a personal level too. Cultivating relationships with our theological enemies. It turns out loving your enemy um, is like a thing. And, and, and for Jesus, like it's, it's, it, it matters not just your, the enemies that want to kill you, but the enemies that think differently than you do as well. Well, you know, recently I published an article at Christian Century about Jesus's command to love your enemies, pray for your persecutors, because Steve Bannon, we all know who Steve Bannon is, but one of the Trump insiders, uh, he was going, you know, going to court. And before that, he had, you know, been on a podcast called The War Room, by the way, but he was on a podcast and he had said before the trial, he was proclaiming his victory ahead of time. He said, uh, pray for our enemies because we're going to go medieval on them. Mm. And I wrote this article because I'm like, he's quoting Jesus, but I don't think that's what Jesus meant. Mm. Mm. And But that did open up, like, if we're called to pray for our enemies, what should we be praying for them? And um, one thing I found really interesting, if you look at Matthew, this is in Matthew 5, but you look at Matthew more generally, um, one of the key statements in the same section is, um, you know, God gives, you know, the Father gives sunshine, causes the sun to rise and the mm. rain to fall on the righteous and unrighteous alike. And I had to spend some time with that and just say, what, what is this saying about God? God has just... a uh, default setting of care for all people, no matter what category they fit into. And um, some people say, is the rain punishment? And is that, no, I think it's all good. Like the sun is rising and giving warmth and heat and the rain is following, falling and supporting, you know, crops. What's he saying? We not only need to listen to our enemies, but we need to actually care for them. I mean, that's crazy. <laughs> you know, what's interesting is he, you know, Jesus affirms you're still going to have enemies. Like, you're not going to get to a place where you're Mr. Rogers and you love everyone and everybody loves you. AJ, we have ached together over the fact that, you know, Enneagram threes, we really want everyone to like us. Mm. And unfortunately, you, yeah. we've learned the hard way. I've learned the hard way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've ascended. That, you, I, I, that I, it's been a long time since I ascend. So I, I, I've, I'm praying that, that ship has sailed. But, um, what does it mean to love my enemies and even to support them in some way? Uh, Asia, I've learned that takes some trust. I think we withhold trust from God when we don't believe that it is true that we should love our enemies. We're actually saying, God, I don't trust you and I know what's right for the world. Hmm. And what's right is that I got to go on social media and take some people down. Um I read something recently that kind of stuck with me, and I don't know how to phrase it exactly, but I'm going to phrase it my own way. Um, and, and this gets back to your, you, you know, what you said about, you know, loving your enemy doesn't mean you don't take a stand. But what I read was something like, 
Um, criticism is important, but you have to earn criticism. Mm. And you earn criticism by showing that in general, you show generosity to your enemies. In general, um, you know, you know, you're going to like we say to our kids, you told kids stories. We say to our kids, you know, it takes 10, 10 nice things to overcome one negative thing you said to them just emotionally. I, I know it's not a mathematical formula, but it's kind of like that way for us, too, as theologians, as scholars, as people in the church. Um, if I go on a social media, I see somebody, they're just, they're just taking shots all the time. Yeah. To me, that says something about their spirituality. I love incisive criticism. I love a good incisive book review blog, but if that's all they do, or if they're only signaling positively to their in camp and only lobbing grenades at their, at the outsiders, um, to me as a seminary professor, that's, that's a sign of lack of health. That's a sign Mm -hmm. of. Um, one of the dangers of being a, a, a theologian in an ivory tower is you're all alone. <laughs> mm-hmm. And my fear for pastors, my fear for some professors is um, they enjoy the attention on social media and they can live in isolation. Mm-hmm. And you're talking about getting practical and giving advice. Um, I'm always humbled, by the way, just spending time with my kids. They bring me down to earth. Mm-hmm. Uh, for example, I was opening a box of new books that I, my own book that I had just come out. I had opening a box of it. And in the unboxing video, which is kind of a vanity thing that you do to show that you got, you know, your own books in the vanity video, I had trouble opening the box. And you can, if you listen closely, you can hear my daughter laughing at me. So we need those moments as isolated people to bring us back down to earth. But, um, you know, let's get back to the masochism, sadism, you know, peace, this idea of punishing. I mean, AJ, correct me if I'm wrong, but it's kind of putting ourselves in the position of God, Mm. right? Mm. When when we look at the scandals that have happened with Ravi Zacharias and other people, um, Bill Hybels, there's some, there's some piece of that use of power is, kind of attributing yourself godlike features that shouldn't be does that yeah is that happening with this where's this where's this masochism coming from um i don't know it but but i can feel it in my own bones i mean yeah. it, it's not something that i see other people doing and them alone that, i mean there are times when i'm reading something and somebody makes a point that I want to get on social media and just belittle and mock. I mean, it's just, it's a part of the flesh. I don't think that this is like some, I, the last thing I want in this conversation is to make it sound like, well, these are all other people. I, it's, it's in all of us, this desire. I love the way you said it, this desire to want to play, take the place of the divine. Hmm. I like to distinguish between what I call healthy criticism or humble criticism and what I like to call critiquiness. And the difference is that healthy criticism actually has a goal of some kind of reconciliation and relationship, whereas critiquiness, there's nothing that can be done. I just want to beat you up. And yeah. so it becomes about this critiquiness becomes about um, there's no way to resolve this. I just don't like you, and I'm going to use theology to put you in your place. That's spiritual abuse. And, yeah. and Christ, you know, we do the, – the Bible is the Word of God, and it's described as a sword. 
It is a powerful tool. And to the degree that we're willing to just wield it for the purpose of beating up who we perceive to be our enemies is to take the text uh, into our own hands and to manipulate it. And, it. and it grieves God's heart, and, and it should grieve our heart as well. And slow down. I mean, this theology is called slow theology. When you feel those impulses towards theological revenge, you want to get it back at somebody, take a week. Take a week and be silent before God mm-hmm. and allow the grace of God to penetrate into the contours of your soul. And remember at those moments in your life when you were wrong and God loved you tremendously. Can I close, by the way, with one of my favorite images in the whole Bible? I love one of my favorite images, and everybody overlooks it except for me because I have an incredible set of eyes. When you read the book of Jonah, Jonah chapter 1, God tells Jonah, I want you to go to Nineveh. He doesn't. He runs the other way. And there's this line in Jonah 1 when it says, Jonah was getting on the boat and paying his fare he went on to Tarshish. And I've always loved that line, ever since I read it 20 years ago, it's always stuck with me, paying the fare. I wonder if at the moment when Jonah looked down with the fare in his hand, if he remembered all those stories he was told as a kid about how God cares for everyone and that God was providing for Jonah as he ran from God. The idea that God is giving breath to the atheist, he's giving the fare to Jonah, he is caring and sustaining for even those who are in total rebellion against God. If God is willing to care for his enemies, good Lord, we could practice just a little bit of that in our lives because God knows he's done it for us. Amen. Yeah. Great conversation, DJ. I can't wait for our next one, too. We're going to have a hoot. Absolutely. <laughs>